We're in a series entitled um, The Discipline of Hope, and I wanted to just briefly address uh, the question, why did we want to do this series? Um, for those of you who've been around Spark, you know that one of the core central aspects of our identity is to ensure that we are grounded in uh, the story and the person and the ministry and life of Jesus. And that's the thing that ultimately informs everything that we do. If you have any questions about why do we do what we do, why do we do X, why, you know, why have you made this, this, this particular decision, every single answer to that question, though there may be some additional answers, the fundamental reason is that it ultimately comes down to Jesus. The And that's why we talked about last week that the fundamental mission of who we are is to inspire people to live in the way of Jesus. So if you have any questions about us, there's your answer. Done. Have a good day. Let's go eat tacos. But um, one of the reasons why uh, we wanted to do this series is because coming out of what we came out of and still coming out of uh, there are a lot of things that are grabbing our attention. There's a lot of things that are burdening our hearts and our souls. Um, I think all of us, whether we know it or not, or conscious of it or not, are either affected by suffering from a collective or individual trauma over this last year. And uh, that might be too much harsh of a word, depending upon where you are. I don't want to overstate the case. Um, but many people have been talking about that idea that the thing that we thought was going to be true, the thing that we thought was supposed to be quote unquote normal. In fact, a lot of people were using that word. When do we get back to normal? Um, that idea and expectation was dashed. And so in the midst of a dashed expectation and a hope of what was supposed to be, we are now trying to reaccumulate some sense of grounding and for us because we're grounded in the way of Jesus some sense of hope and what does that mean so last week we talked about you have permission and we wanted to make sure that everybody in our congregation had permission to feel what they needed to feel to process what they needed to process to be in the place that they needed to be in and I can't believe it I forgot my green bracelet at home shame on me so um you have the bracelets, which are your different colors. You can bring a blanket. You can spread out. You can let you, whatever it is you need to do. The bracelets were a way of us exemplifying the permission that you have to process in the way that you need to process. In addition to you have permission to feel what you need to feel, we're also going to encourage and challenge us to also touch on the and. And the and is discipline ourselves into hope. And... For us, because we're grounded in Jesus, one of the fundamental principles is that the hope that we have is going to spring from the well of the stories that we tell. You might tell a story about what happened, and the story is focusing in on all of the negative things or all of the ways in which things go bad. Well, that's where your essential perspective is then going to emerge. It's the story that you tell. What I'd like to do today is reground us in one of the most fundamental stories that inform our identity, our faith, and how we process and navigate the world. And specifically with this word hope, it's amazing how much the entirety of our story from Genesis all the way on through Revelation, if you know a little bit about your Bible, if all of those single stories constantly are referring back to this original story of what happened at the beginning, and that becomes the grounding story out of which all the other stories that we tell emerge. 
And so what I'd like to do is take us back to the original story and just focus in on a couple verses and draw out a couple things that I hope are an encouragement and inspiration to you. This image, by the way, uh, comes from a book called the Nuremberg Chronicle. You can check this out and look it up. It's one of the oldest um, colored woodcut prints. There's like over 600 pages of the chronicle of the entirety of the world, and it starts in the Genesis story. And these images here are going to be used as part of the story Sorry, these images are going to be used as the backdrop for the Genesis creation narrative story that we'd like to begin with. And so, if you would permit me, I'd like to start a little bit in Genesis chapter 1. When God began to create the heavens and the land, and the land was formless and empty, and with darkness over the face of Tehom, and God's wind brooding over the face of the waters. These are the opening lines of our text, of our Bible. These are the opening words. And there's a couple, there's so much in here. There's a couple things that I'd like to point out. Number one, the word to home there is the same word that is used or translated into the Greek as the word abyss. And if you need an image or a picture, there's all sorts of mythologies that come from this particular word where darkness was over whatever that to home is. This is one of the images and pictures of what to home is. It's the primordial swamp of chaotic waters that have no place, no order, no direction, no semblance of any purpose or meaning. This is the image and picture. And so to home is not only an ancient mythical creature, but it is also a mythical creature that symbolizes a world before there was order, before things were put together and collaborated together and given meaning and purpose and direction. And it is over this to home that the scripture writers wrote, not only was darkness over the face of this abyss or this deep, but God's wind as we are feeling right now was brooding over the face of those waters. Now, if you need an image for what that is, that word brooding there is specific, a specific translation that I chose, not to mean was just simply hovering, but brooding because this is the image that is used frequently in your Bible. It's actually used only one other time in Deuteronomy to describe an eagle that hovers over its young, broods over its younglings. And the idea that is encapsulated here is that yes, at the very beginning, there was a Tahom, there was an abyss, there was chaotic waters with no order and no meaning and purpose, but look what God was doing over that deep, incubating a new life out of it, giving it new life, filling it with meaning and purpose, giving it direction. That is one of the most fundamental foundational stories that we tell. And that gets played out over and over and over again in our lives. You have run into a particular level of chaos. And what you need is not somebody to tell you how bad you are or how you got yourself into this mess. What you need is a God that broods over your chaos so that you can incubate a new life out of it. What is that new life that was incubated out of the chaos of Tahome? That's the question. Well, to answer that question, just simply keep reading along. And God said, let there be light, which is day one. And light becomes this preeminent symbol of life. How many of you know later on in chapter 12, God is going to call a gentleman by the name of Abram, who is later known as 
Abraham, and he comes out of a city. Does anybody remember the name of the city that he is called out of to reinstitute a whole new creation on this earth? Called Ur of the Chaldeans. That word Ur is the Hebrew word for light. And so just as in Genesis chapter 1, light is at the very beginning to create a new order, a new purpose, and a new direction, so God then reinstitutes that new order, that new creation through Abraham as through somebody who's come out of the city of light. On day two, God says, let there be a dome, a firmament, quite literally a hard shell that is keeping the waters up there and these waters down here. And then on day three, God says, let the waters under that dome, under that firmament, be gathered to one place and let the dryness appear. And it was so. God called the dryness land and the gathered waters he called seas. Now, what's fascinating is that these two words right here are grounded in another root word that means to gather. It's the word mikvah. Many of you might have known this word, um, but it means to gather them together. Remember the story. What's ultimately happening at the beginning is that those chaotic Tehom abyss waters were not gathered. They were just scattered all over the place. They didn't have any order, any form. They didn't have any container through which they could produce anything wonderful and good. And so what God does as a result of the hovering, the brooding over is he gathers them together. He pulls them together so that they can form some sort of potential, some sort of goodness in this world, rather than a scattered mess. This is an image of what a modern-day mikvah actually looks like. And here's an image of what an ancient mikvah looks like. A mikvah is a gathering of those waters. And for this particular symbol, what, has, what is the ancestor to our practice of baptism is that when you gather those waters together, grounded in our Genesis story, those gathered waters now have the potential to clean, to transform, to renew, to wipe clean, and to restart again. Scattered waters don't do that. They bring destruction and flooding. Gathered waters bring new life. What's fascinating is that this word mikveh, or mikveh, is extremely similar because it's rooted in the exact same root as our word hope. When you see the word hope in your Bible, especially in the Hebrew text, it's going to be grounded in this concept, in this idea, that the gathered waters, rather than scattered waters, have the potential to do something good and wonderful in the world. Throughout our text, we see these words, mikveh, tikva. In fact, if you know the national anthem of Israel, tikva, ha-tikva, comes from this word, the hope. The underlying definition and connotation is that this is a collecting place. And by collecting those waters together, there's now potential. And there's an expectation that the collected waters are going to do something good, positive, redemptive in this world. Just like in Genesis 1, the gathered waters were there to bring a new life. So now through the rest of our text, we will see the word mikveh as the word for hope, symbolizing those gathered waters to do something good. If you need an image, here's another image. And I wanted to bring one because I thought we're outside, it would be a good. But when you put waters together in this, think of what potential 
there is in that? What could come about from those gathered waters? And I was curious if a water balloon was actually a mikveh, you know, because there's lots of sites out there. I actually Googled, is a water balloon a mikveh? And by the way, I only got about eight results. So I think the answer is no. This idea of God being our hope is grounded in this image of gathered waters that have the potential where we now have the expectation that something wonderful and good is going to happen. This comes into play in one of our stories that is very well known about Jesus in John chapter 8, where he is confronted by the religious leaders who are not looking for potential. They're looking for accusation. They're looking for condemnation. And they bring a woman who's caught in adultery, quote unquote, caught in adultery. There's lots of commentary around that. Throw this woman at Jesus's feet and says, listen, the law says we should stone her. You say we should love her. Tell us, Rabbi, what are you going to do? Are you going to compromise your ethics or are you going to compromise your commitment? What are you going to do? And in this famous story in John chapter 8, what does Jesus do? He bends down and he writes in the dirt, the sand, the earth. There's lots of different possible translations. What's fascinating about this is that every Christian commentator wants to know what in the world did Jesus write in the dirt? Because what happens immediately after that is that the religious leaders, starting with the older ones, like feel like they got thrown under the bus, they got shamed, they got called out, and they begin to back away. So what in the world did Jesus write? If you understand the connections that Jesus is making to Old Testament passages, it doesn't matter what he wrote. It's that he wrote. Because in Jeremiah chapter 17, we see this idea emerge out of another prophetic condemnation that is coming. And God saying, how dare you condemn people? How dare you use the law to heap shame and condemnation and judgment on people? And Jeremiah says, hope, the hope of Israel, O Lord, all who forsake you, meaning the people that are using God to shame other people, those are the people that are going to be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the land. There's that phrase, the exact same phrase that's used in John chapter eight. And what's fascinating is while some translations use written on the ground, there's that word hope. And that word hope, there's the word mikveh. And then what's opposite of that at the very end of the phrase is the idea of the fountain of living water. And right in between it, that word shame sounds like the word for dryness in Genesis chapter 1. So what Jesus is doing while he bends down and writes in the dirt is he's evoking this particular passage from Jeremiah 17 and saying, as he writes in the ground, you think you want to point out what this woman has done and use that against her and to use what you think you know of the law and the teachings and of your scriptures to trap me and to produce condemnation and judgment. But the reality is, gentlemen, is that you are actually the ones that are going to be put to shame by doing that. And what you are is you're just a dry, parched land. The real essence of what Jesus came to do was to be this hope of Israel, which is the fountain of living water. What's the fountain? It's the gathered waters again, coming to bring restoration. You wanted to point out what is. What Jesus came to do is to point out what could be, 
to see past the current circumstances of this life, of this moment, and to imagine, to prophetically imagine what could come out of, what could emerge out of this chaos. And very much like the Genesis chapter 1 passage, there was a scattered water chaos, no movement, no meaning, no purpose. And as God gathered those waters together, there was now potential for life, forgiveness, redemption, rebirth. And that is essentially what Jesus is embodying here in this particular story. Jeremiah has this theme earlier in chapter 14. There's an extensive passage about the desolation and the parched nature of the land. Again, this theme of water showing up over and over again. Judah mourns and her gates languish. They lie in gloom on the ground and the cry of Jerusalem goes up. Her nobles send their servants for water. They come to the cisterns. They find no water. They return with their vessels empty. They are ashamed and dismayed and covered their heads. Because the ground is cracked, because there has been no rain on the land, the farmers are dismayed. They cover their heads. This is very apropos for California's drought right now. Even the doe in the field forsakes her newborn fawn because there is no grass. The wild donkeys stand on the bare heights. They pant for air like the jackals. Their eyes fail because there is no herbage. Oh, hope of Israel, its savior in time of trouble. Why should you be like a stranger in the land, like a traveler turning aside for the night? Why should you be like someone confused, like a mighty warrior who cannot give help? Yet you, O Lord, are in the midst of us. We are called by your name. And there's that word once again. The gathered waters of Israel, especially in the context of a parched and dry land. These uh, prophetic passages are crying out for a God to bring the gathered waters here to nourish the land that has been dry and not just the chaotic waters that destroy, but the gathered waters that bring life, potentiality, expectation, and transformation. As I was reading this passage, I kept thinking about our conversations that we've been having around climate change and one of my favorite um, communicators around this, Catherine Hayhoe, is is writing a book. This book's not coming out to September, but this is one thing that I heard her mention in discussing the promo of her book, Saving Us, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope and Healing in a Divided World, because she gets asked all the time, given what you know about the state of our planet, where do you find hope? And so she's written a book about this because she gets asked this all the time. And what she said was just so apropos to what I believe to be the current, the undercurrent of the entire theme of our scriptures. She says, we labor under the mistaken impression that hope comes from positive circumstances, that if everything is okay and a positive outcome is guaranteed, then it's hopeful. She says that's wrong, both biblically and sociology, sociologically. Hope begins in a dark place, in negative circumstances, with the possibility of a bright light at the end of a tunnel, the possibility of a better future. And as you can imagine, this is why we call the series The Discipline of Hope. In dark times, in negative circumstances, in parched and dry land, this is when you hope. That is when you hope. You deploy the discipline of the potentiality of the gathered waters amongst us and see what God can do 
with those gathered waters. This is very much commensurate with Romans 5, what Paul says, but we also boast in our sufferings. Our sufferings? We boast in our sufferings, the things that we don't want, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces, there it is. It comes out of the suffering. It comes out of those trials. It's not that they don't exist. It's that we can see what could exist out of it. And hope does not disappoint. And I can believe it. I mean, here's that phrase. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. How do you pour out love? How do you pour anything out except that you've taken something that looks like this? News, a distraction, a pandemic, a condemnation, a religious abuse. You take that and you gather it. You bring it together and you expect that something else can emerge out of it. And when you gather it, then you can pour it. God's love, God's grace, God's hope, God's redemption, God's people. This is why we gather Do you know how much potential there is just in this quote-unquote room? This is what we do with our children. We don't condemn them for who they are right now. We build into them. We discipline. We expect them because we know that inside of each and every one of them is this grand, great, beautiful potential for something beautiful to be in this world. And even with the pandemic... And even with disease, even with tragedy and loss, we could continually point that out and say, well, that's just what is. And you may actually be right. That may be what is. But our story is grounded in what could be. So, fine. It is. Be what you need to be. Recognize where we are take stock of the current situation and reality. But hope is ultimately grounded in what ultimately could come out of it. And all the way back to Genesis, when God gathered the waters, hovered over that deep, incubated new life out of it, so too are we called to now do the same. As we come to communion... I couldn't help but notice that this is a bunch of gathered waters. Oh, sweet, sure. But this, too, is a bunch of gathered waters. And every time we come to participate in communion, we are also celebrating what God has done and what God could do out of this. So today, as we gather for communion, I pray that as you come, you can bring whatever happens to be currently in your life. Bring it. And then take the gathered waters and the bread and find a way to turn your heart and your soul to receiving what God could do out of it. As we remember the amazing transformation that Jesus did out of his chaos, out of his storm. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Um, We do have a gluten-free option in the basket and the regular in the bin. No matter what happens to be, my friends, you are welcome at this table to come, partake, and the great possibilities of what could emerge out of whatever chaos we might happen to be. All are welcome at this table.